So a couple of years ago, I realized that I had walked to my local bookstore on probably five separate occasions to buy the exact same book to give away as a gift. And that book was Cantorus by Carolina de Robertis. It centers the lives of five queer women in Uruguay, and something about it just captured me. Here they are living under a deeply oppressive regime, and yet they still find a way to explore their queer identities. They find joy, joy in the face of seeming despair. So for many reasons, I am deeply fond of that book, and as you can assume, was very excited to get to talk to Carolina for the podcast. We talk about Cantoras, of course, about what keeps calling her back to Uruguay and her writing, and we also talk about her brand new novel that is called The President and the Frog and is loosely based on Jose Mujica. Jose is a revolutionary who, after many years of imprisonment, eventually went on to become the president of Uruguay. The novel focuses on that time in his life when he was imprisoned, he was imprisoned for 12 years, and according to him, helped him maintain his sanity by talking to a frog. So the new novel is called The President and the Frog, and it's out now. From The Advocate Magazine, in partnership with GLAAD, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and this is LGBTQ and A. So you immigrated from Uruguay while your mom was pregnant with you. You lived in England, Switzerland, and California, and in much of your work, you keep returning to and writing about Uruguay. I feel like it is a simple question. You know, why do you keep returning to it in your writing? And yet, not every immigrant does feel compelled to write about their homeland. So I do want to start off by asking, what is it about this place that keeps calling you to it? I have felt pulled for, you know, my first five books back to Uruguay and to the neighboring country of Argentina, whose destinies have been, you know, interwoven throughout their histories. And I think there's various layers to that. One of them for me is that I have this peculiar experience of remembering immigrating to this country at 10 years old. So I'm not a daughter of immigrants who was born here, unlike other people who sort of have this experience of having been fully formed in the United States. But I also didn't grow up in or wasn't born in my country of origin. I have this distance of not having been shaped within the country of origin as immigrants who come directly from their country to the United States have that sort of memory and that proximity to the culture. So I was living in different countries where I always felt like I had this country inside of my skin that wasn't visible to me outside my skin. So I think there's that kind of pull and fascination born of distance and a sense of there being a rootedness that is elsewhere. I also think my journey was very much shaped by the fact that, you know, Uruguayans were a very small diaspora. It's a country of three and a half million people. And so it's very common to not have a big Uruguayan community in the place that you emigrate to. So my parents were really the cultural gatekeepers. They're the ones who passed down what it meant to be Uruguayan. And so when they disowned me in my mid-20s, you know, due to various things, including familial homophobia, combined with this idea that I couldn't be Uruguayan. And my parents explicitly said that to me at one point, you know, you can't be Uruguayan anymore because you're gay. That doesn't exist in our country. So of course, what does that do? It launches me on this deep journey to reclaim my roots on my own terms. And then along the way, that also becomes, of course, connected to a deeper, larger reclaiming of all of our queer stories. That's one way in which my queerness really connects to my passion to return and return 
So it sounds like you've always felt a connection there, but then being disowned, it kind of like amplified that. And them saying you can't be gay in Uruguayan, you were like, ha, let me show you. <laughs> yes. I mean, along the way, it didn't always feel that triumphant, but I certainly like that version of the narrative. I mean, I think there was certainly some trauma there, of course, you know, as there is for so many of us when we experience that kind of rejection from a rude place. You know, so many of us queer folks, not just Latinx folks or immigrants, have that experience, right, of being told that we are no longer part of the tribe. I think it's so important that you do talk about being disowned because I think it's so easy to think that that doesn't happen anymore. For a long time, I really struggled to talk about it in public and to really make my experience with familial homophobia visible. When I was launching my first and second book, I really couldn't talk about it in public. And the main reason was that I would get hit with xenophobia and anti-Latinx bias. Anti-Latinx stereotypes would come at me almost immediately. I would say, well, my parents disowned me for being gay. And people would say, that's because they're Latinos and they're Latino immigrants. And so they don't understand. You come from a backwards people, so they're homophobic and they're just not exposed. And all of that is not true. I mean, I went back to Uruguay and not only did my search for lesbian life succeed and lead to the seeds to Cantoras, this novel about lesbians during the dictatorship in Uruguay, but also I found that the Uruguay, Uruguay in particular is the most secular country in Latin America. It's very progressive. And I found a lot of relative openness. My parents are much more homophobic than their country of origin. In other words, that was a stereotype that simply wasn't true. In fact, I think Latinx culture today is in some ways on the vanguard of queer culture making, as evidenced even by the X in Latinx or the E in Latine in Spanish-speaking contexts. So that's that would happen, is I felt like often white people would come at me with this story that my parents were homophobic because they were Latino and it was a Latino problem. Well, I think that like a recurring theme I keep seeing is that even though we have evidence to the contrary against like every cliche and stereotype, we're still able to say things like, oh, the black community is homophobic, even though every community has homophobia in it. Yes, exactly. And I think that that the black community is a great example, too, of this. I mean, I've experienced it as a Latina woman, but I've also seen it with the black community and, and heard it said as well, because I'm married to a black woman and we're raising, you know, biracial black and Latinx kids. Meanwhile, my mother-in-law made our wedding dresses by hand in 2002 from Vogue patterns and uh, came out queer herself later in life. And she's now come to live with us in our patriarchy-free, multi-generational, multiracial, multilingual household, you know? So that is just one example. When your parents ended their relationship with you, uh, how old were you and how long had you been out of the closet at that point? I was 25. I had been out of the closet since I was 19, pretty much as soon as I knew. I told my parents, I told, I told everyone. I came out as bisexual at first, you know, which is still true for me. I feel like that's my center of gravity is lesbian. I also love the word queer for the way that it doesn't have to justify anything. And I also identify as a genderqueer person, you know, even on the level of gender identity. I, you know, I, I love the embrace of the word queer. And I know it doesn't resonate for everyone. I'll say I believe in the proliferation of language. The more words, the better. So I'm a dyke. I'm a lesbian. I'm also bi. It's all good. But I came out first as bisexual in particular. And when I came out in the late 90s, you could not be both bisexual and a lesbian unless you were like super radical. And I hadn't found those people yet. So coming out as bisexual meant that my parents sort of decided, oh, she'll come around, right? It's a phase. All of that way that bisexuality gets kind of perceived and discounted, but also kind of this narrative of like, she'll find her straight self. 
so what really happened is that once I was with a woman and I was like, this is the love of my life. As soon as I met her, I was like, this is the one. We're just going to do this thing. She's just amazing. That was the, the catalyst, really, was the sort of, okay, now this is something you can't look away from because I'm getting married. And it's not even legal for us to get married. We're just like helping ourselves to this term and declaring, kind of claiming, claiming the space of calling ourselves married. So it was really a process of many years, sort of like a six-year process. And now, almost two decades later, and the fact that you are a mom, has that like changed how you think about it even and like reframe that? I mean, so much. And here's another interesting thing that would happen when I would tell people about the disownment is people would say, well, your parents will come around when you have kids because they'll want grandkids and they'll connect. And, and people, this came from a very well-meaning place. I think a lot of people would just say, well, of course they'll come around because I would come around. The whole time I thought, well, you don't know my parents, right? And so definitely they did not come around. They actually dug in their heels and tried to turn my siblings against my first child when I was pregnant with the first child. They really dug in their heels and, and told my siblings to cut off this child that was not yet born, which is, I use that example to say, it's not true that everybody comes around, right? There really is no one path that this story takes. But the thing that's been really powerful for me is to experience deep in my bones, deep in my blood, the way that it is possible to still thrive. All of that is still possible. We actually don't need the people who have decided to stay mired in their homophobia. Even if there are immediate relatives, we don't actually need them to thrive. That is the narrative that I see missing a lot of the time. I think often the redemption arc of, of a queer story of familial homophobia is eventually the family comes around and accepts the queer people. And that's a good narrative. I don't mean to disparage it, but I think the narrative I'm hungry for in the world is the one where we can still absolutely thrive, regardless of that. We don't actually have to wait for home. If we all wait for all the homophobic people to, quote, come around, and quote, we're going to give up our whole lives, right? So for me, having kids really rooted me in that. It also sounds like in your life, you know, you've moved around so much. So like your definition of home might be less geographically centered, but then also you no longer have a relationship with your parents. So like that is off the table. Like, have you been continually having to like redefine what home means to you? Yes. Yes, I think I have. And I think that's part of what made me a writer. Part of the reason I became a writer is to claim and shape my own narrative and to make a home on the page and through the page that's complex, that's nuanced, that has room for me and hopefully room for people like me or that expands room for other people. I mean, going back to what you were saying, too, about labels, I think that our language is always evolving, which I find terribly exciting, to be honest. But I think that, like, we've entered the time in, like, literally queer history now where we're all about layering on the labels. Mm. So you can be bisexual and a faggot and, you know, all yes. these things. Yes. And, like, I think that is, like, very exciting where, you know, you identified as bi, then married a woman. You can be, like, a bi, lesbian, dyke. You know, you could be everything. So Together. You can just like, keep taking on more labels. 
Absolutely. It really gives me life. I absolutely love that about this stage of, of, of queer culture. And I feel more at home with it in some ways than the form of queer culture that I got to know when I first came out in the 90s. And I don't think it's insignificant that you and I can have a similar label, queer. You know, we get to have the same word. Yeah, we get to share a word if we choose to share a word. Yeah, exactly. I mean, part of that, too, is the infinite refraction of experience, right? Because even if you take one label, like lesbian, I mean, lesbian contains multitudes. Every single one of these words, in fact, contains multitudes. And the more we can acknowledge that within both a community and within a movement, a movement for rights, the more we'll have liberation. It took me a lot to get to the place of calling myself a bisexual lesbian. It took years. And I still remember the first time a woman said to me, very matter-of-factly, well, I'm a bisexual lesbian. And we were in bed together. And it was like, blew the top of my head off. I was like, you get to do that? Wow. Well, if you can do it, can I? So now we're in a space, a cultural space, where people don't have to go through all of that in order to just claim whatever is true. And, you know, with being queer, you are a very romantic writer. and Think so? Yeah, I do. Do you not do you not agree with that assessment? I don't know. I mean, I write a lot about love and sex and romance. I think that with the word romantic, um, I have a little bit of a reaction about the way it gets used, not by you in particular, but by the publishing industry. Oh, because you're not a romance author to like pigeonhole you. Yeah, right. To condescend to women writers. I'm not saying, I am in no way saying that's you. No, yeah, 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 no, I, I get you. I'll tell you what I find romantic. It's the fact that there is always a queer joy hidden in your characters, even in Cantoras, this like oppressive regime. You know, it wasn't only trauma. These women were able to find find joy and romance and sex. And I find that queer hope to be romantic in a way. Mm. And I also, I don't mean this to be cheesy, but I think it takes bravery for queer people to express romantic notions more than sex and desire, because in many ways it feels safer in our culture talking about sex. But romance and like romantic relationships, the emotions that come with that, I think we have less practice with. I almost think I might need to do a little work fully embracing the word romantic in relation to my work. And you're the perfect person to kind of push that open for me a little. And I'm going to sit with it later because there is a way that there's condescension in the publishing industry around women writers using the word romantic. And yet what you're opening up and pulling forward is this other piece about writing about queer joy and writing about sex. Yes, absolutely. Right. The prismatic possibilities of sex and queer sex, but also sometimes overlapping, sometimes not romance, like love and connecting through the heart. I mean, we're not we don't have enough narratives about that. And we don't have enough narratives about queer joy, including queer joy in very oppressive circumstances, which is real and which is so beautiful. And part of our infinite, you know, resilience and power and beauty as queer people. And also for me, I feel like it's true. Probably every single one of my books has romantic elements. And that's honestly because I have had an experience in my own life where I'm like, this shit is real. It is possible to connect with a person to the depths of your soul on the margins of society in a relationship that is reviled by the dominant culture and yet 
is beautiful, is a palace, is life-affirming, is amazing. I'm still in love with this woman that I married 20 years ago, so I'm not going to shut up about it, right? The other thing about Kentoris that I found so compelling was that this was this was five queer women living in Uruguay under a dictatorship with very little access and information from the outside world. And correct me if I'm wrong, it seemed like the queer community there was able to develop without major outside influence. Well, that's right, because within the context of the Uruguayan dictatorship, you know, information exchange across borders shut down in a manner that is almost impossible to imagine right now in the Internet age, right, where you have authoritarian regimes where people are still accessing information on the Internet. But in the late 70s and early 80s, it was possible for a dictatorship to really shut down access to information. But so I'm really interested in telling stories or exploring stories where people make space for their their queerness and queer truth and realities without access to the community, the labels, the language we have now. And I think that's a really important part of affirming our queer histories because so many people did exist in those contexts, right? And one example is just the name Kentaurus. It's a euphemism for lesbian, much like Lighten Your Loafers or Nancy, Friend of Dorothy, yes, things like that. Those wonderful words. How widespread was that term in Uruguay? Well, it wasn't as widespread as I thought when I was writing the book, actually. <laughs> when I was writing it, I had I had learned this word and I thought it was just fantastic because it's a word that means singer. And so you can say, you know, hey, do you think she's a cantora? Does she, you know, do you think she, does she sing? Could we make her sing? You know, wink, wink, nudge, nudges, all these great ways that you can kind of use the word. And I thought it was really beautiful. So when I um, named the book Cantoras at the end, I realized I really get, I'd really better get a, a, a closer sense of how widespread it was. And it was really a, a, a basically a few overlapping friend groups that used this word. And there's the belief that this one particular woman uh, coined the word. But she had a stroke right when I was trying to find out. She was in her 80s. And of course, this group of other queer women were taking care of her in her 80s because she never had children. And that's what we queers do, right? We create chosen families. So you're preserving that local bit of history, too, for them. Yes, 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 yes. And that's what some of these women said. They said, you know, these stories would not have been written down if, if you hadn't done it. I mean, I have shelves and shelves of books about the Uruguayan dictatorship. And I can tell you how many of them have narratives in them about what it was like to be queer in that period. It's zero. And then so the new book, The President and the Frog, takes place, you know, during the dictatorship and then also many years after. It is my favorite kind of book where you hear the concept and you think, that's kind of out there. And it could very easily like go off the rails, you know? And so it clearly did not. I'm glad you think it didn't. <laughs> You're so welcome. But I do have a question about that because for everyone who doesn't know, it's loosely based on the president, Jose Muica, who talks to a frog during his over 10 plus years in imprisonment in a hole. So did you develop internal guidelines to figure out how to make a book like this work? I absolutely did. And some of those guidelines come into being before you start writing the novel. And some of those come in come into being as you progress and realize, am I going to run off the rails? What would help me avoid doing that? But definitely it, going into this book, I knew from the beginning it was going to be strange. I mean, I am a believer in, in the weird and the possibilities and power of the weird in narrative. And I think that sometimes our instinct in first drafts can be to flatten the weird, 
just as our instinct can also be to flatten out the queer or the complex or the nuanced. But I think that there's a lot of power and possibility in that which is weird, but maybe has not been said before in that way. So I knew from the beginning of the project that this would be based on and inspired by Jose Mujica, but really kind of honing in on one particular detail of his life and then running with it, which is that when he was in solitary confinement in the late 70s, he had been brutally tortured by the dictatorship government. He had tried to plot a revolution. He once said that he survived by talking to frogs. And it was this sort of cast off comment in an interview because he didn't talk very much about those things, those, that aspect of things. It's so unlikely that a former guerrilla revolutionary became, would become a president of the country. I mean, imagine if a former Black Panther became president of the United States. That's sort of the, the, the kind of thing that here we would think, well, that's, that's impossible. But that's the kind of impossibility that happened. And so I'm interested, I was interested in that space of like, he talked to a frog in that time, in that hole. Everything seemed lost. What were those conversations? And the question under that question is the really important one, which is, what are those conversations that he had with himself that allowed him to not only survive, but root in his inner courage and kind of come out of that experience with so much hope and vitality, not just for himself, but to make the world a better place or to strive to do so. And the question under that question is, you know, what does it take for each of us in those bleak moments to have those inner dialogues that open up secret moments where we face ourselves and make more things possible? Yeah. I hope that I didn't offend you also by saying, like, the concept was weird. Oh, it is the opposite of offensive. Perfect. <laughs> I love that. I absolutely I just want to make sure. love that you said it. And you know, the word weird is such an interesting word. And I will say I really claim it, right? It, it has the root in the weird sisters, which are the wise sisters, right? They were witches. Yeah. And also, like, don't you want to read books that are weird, you know? I want to read books that are weird in the service of a larger vision. I'm hungry to read that. And I personally, as a reader, have read books whose weirdness really opened up possibilities that changed my life. I mean, you know, I think the fourth or fifth time that I reread Beloved by Toni Morrison, which is one of the greatest works of U.S. literature or literature in English, in, in my opinion, I remember reading through and going, this is weird. And she really trusted the weird and was willing to lean into the weird in order to write that book. And it's a majestic masterpiece. And that is one of my points of inspiration in thinking about weird in literature. Well, I will say this, though, because I think the concept is weirder than the execution. You know, there is a reason for this man to be talking to a frog. He's confined in a literal hole in the ground and he has nothing else to do. And also, originally, he's kind of incredulous and he's like, no, I'm not talking to you, frog. Like, I'm going crazy. And so I think like in the actual storytelling of it, like it was fairly like not weird. Yeah. It was like believable in many ways. Well, that's good that it's believable. I mean, I, I like that. I love that. And I think that the weird, that which we call surreal or magical realism or, you know, fabulous fiction, the parable, all of these are kind of, to me, overlapping 
genres of possibility that I think of as the catch-all term I think of, I just coined for myself, is expansive realism. And I look at books like Mosin Hamid's Exit West, and I think it's one of the most powerful moving novels about the refugee crises of our of our world right now. It's so powerful. But, you know, it hinges on this idea that there are these doors that go black and you walk through them and you're somewhere else in the world. In other words, there's this weird idea, but ultimately it is a very human story and it is very much about us. You know, and that's my hope, you know, with this book. My hope is that it, it is a book that, you know, is about us, our human experience, right? Real people, that it's emotionally true, right? Right. And yet, after the last year and a half, we have had many hours alone and in solitude. Yeah, that's true. You know, did being in quarantine, and you finished this before the pandemic, but did being in quarantine like teach you anything about this that you'd like you wish you'd put in the book? That's interesting. I did have the opportunity to revisit the book through the editorial process with my editor at Knopf. And so I had the chance to kind of take it another look at it through the lens of living through the pandemic and find moments where I went, oh, this, this feels prescient or it feels like it rings true within this context. And then had other moments where I was able to kind of tune it a little bit more towards what was on my mind now that we were in the pandemic. But definitely, it's interesting to see the way, you know, you conceive of a book. This book, the seed of it came to me in 2014. So it was kind of there in the in the in the back of my mind swimming while I was writing Cantoras. Um, and often the idea for a book is with me for years before I, I do the writing. And so it's interesting to see the difference between when you think of it, a book, and when it comes out into the world, the way that it acquires new resonances in different times. Oh, right. Because suddenly 2014 and then the 2016 election happened and then the pandemic happened and the world looked completely different. Right, <laughs> right, exactly. And you know, when I first thought of this book, I wrote in my journal back in 2014, if I could ever pull off writing this book, if I ever do embark on it, my dream would be for it to really be a love letter to anyone who's ever felt despair. And kind of through this kind of realm of the parable, be able to write about that journey that we often take from despair to you know, renewal, renewed hope, or a renewed sense of our own strength or possibility or who we want to be in the world. And um, and then I was writing it during the Trump era. So it, it acquired this other layer in which the idea of going through despair about the state of the world or where we're headed is something that now engages more people. I think in 2014, many of us, you know, queers and thinking about institutional racism. I mean, not all, a lot of this is not new. Despair is not new, right? It's not new. And political despair, despair about the world and where it's headed is not new, as well as, in, you know, individual and, and private real sources of despair. But I think a larger society societal awareness of that kind of despair about where we're headed. We're having different conversations now. Thank you so much for spending time today. Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much. This was such a pleasure. And that was Carolina de Robertis. Her new novel, The President and the Frog, is out now. And then, as always, if you enjoyed this interview, please help us spread the word by posting on social media, sending an email, texting or group chats. Doing things like that is the biggest way to help our show continue to grow and keep making new episodes. So thank you so much to everyone who does that every week. We're brought to you by The Advocate Magazine in partnership with GLAAD. I'm Jeffrey Masters on Twitter at JeffMasters1, and I will see you next week.